Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. I mean, I'm a first-time entrepreneur, and again, like not having a track record of um, a couple multi-billion, it's, it's definitely not like a, the biggest plus. But I think you can build a lot of confidence with these investors by showing all the traction uh, that you develop over time. And that has been just uh, working out phenomenally well for us. And honestly, we got a little lucky too. And it's like some of our amazing earlier stage investors like yourself and uh, like NFX, you know, like they, you guys did take a big bet on us. And we are trying every day, you know, to pay back all the returns that you guys deserve, you know, for that bet. So it's a combination of luck, um, having people believe in you and showing a big, big vision and a big mission that you fully believe in. So we believe like our business has the potential to change how cities operate and can add so much to a lot of different people's lives, which I think resonates with a lot of people who want to invest in the business. Firefly raised more than $50 million over the past two years. Khan and I, we actually lived next streets to each other for around two decades. We went to the same elementary school and then to the same high school. I'm fortunate enough to know him so that he let us invest into the company during their initial seed round. In this episode, Khan shares his secret sauce of how he tries to get into the minds of the investors to understand their triggers to be able to persuade their decision. There's a lot to learn from him since the company has been growing phenomenally and Khan has been the core driver of that growth. Listen over and over again, especially if you're currently raising a round. Hello, Khan. What's up? Hey, Enes. Good to hear from you. Likewise, man. So funny story here. We went to the same elementary school and then same high school. So we were together for like, what, 12 years? And then Khan went to Ivy League. I went to Stupid Canada. <laughs> but good to be connected again. Great to hear from you, Enes. Great to hear from you. So today we're going to talk about a bit about your product. Um, then we're going to go into the market. And then I want to talk about your fundraising because you've raised shit tons of capital over the past, like what, 18 or 24 months. And I know there are some good stories there. So let's start with the product. Can you please tell us what Firefly does? Sure. At Firefly, we place internet connected displays on top of taxis and rideshare vehicles and serve location and time-based targeted content. Uh, essentially, we have a three-sided marketplace in this. Mm -hmm. On one side of the marketplace, you have the drivers of taxi and freelance vehicles. Uh, the value proposition to them is that they make an additional 20 to 25% income without having to do anything different. Mm -hmm. That's huge. On the other side of the marketplace, it's huge, it's huge. On the other side of the marketplace, we have advertisers who, who we believe um, are getting for the first time access to a new ad unit. So we believe that we're creating a new ad unit. Yes, taxi top advertising has existed in the US for many years, but we believe uh, that we are completely redefining that ad unit. So advertisers get access to this ad unit. And on the third side of the marketplace, you have third-party data providers. Because these are essentially large IoT devices that are placed on top of the cars, mm -hmm. uh, as they go throughout the city, they collect a lot of smart city data, as well as additional data, uh, which are shared with these third-party data providers, which then help the advertisers measure the efficiency of the campaigns 
Plus, there are many other smart city applications associated with it as well. Mm-hmm. The first question that comes to mind um, is around regulations and whether there are any regulations, especially in the U.S., that would stop you going to the business. And you did a good analogy there about the taxi market because we've seen these devices on top of different cabs, especially in New York, for decades now. How is the regulation space like? And um, is this fully legal or are you guys navigating in in the gray zone? Uh, We're fully compliant with all applicable regulations in the markets that we operate in in this. The beautiful thing about our business is, as you mentioned, there is a very strong precedent, which is taxi advertising. And we do work with taxis as well. So our displays are on top of taxis. And we also work with the natural extension of that, which is uh, rideshare as well. So before we launch a city, we actually go and engage the members of uh, the city council as well as other applicable regulators and tell them all the benefits that we provide and also show that we're fully compliant with all applicable regulations and then we launch. So we don't take the typical let's launch and then beg forgiveness approach. On the contrary, we go in uh, first, we get fully compliant with all applicable regulations, and only then uh, do we start operating. What about safety concerns for the drivers? I mean, if there were accidents um, on the highways because of your advertising, because it can be misleading and people can be looking at while driving, Um, Would that be an issue for Firefly, either now or in the future? Um, So because the content is aimed at pedestrians and it's sideways facing, uh, the drivers do not get affected or do not see the content. So other drivers are not our audience. And we purely aim to show the content to other pedestrians. And given that taxi advertising has existed in the U.S. for many, many years, um, there have been lots of studies made to show there is absolutely no distraction Mm -hmm. uh, that is being caused. And a big portion um, of your value proposition is the hardware component. And I think there was only one large manufacturer that was manufacturing similar hardwares. I think that was LG back in the day, but the market was tiny. And now you are creating this new market where you need thousands of devices Um, So I guess you are developing your hardware internally yourself, right? Correct. Uh, We develop all our devices end-to-end. We have our hardware team, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, and design team, as well as the software layer as well. So we are developing everything end-to-end, and we have been now building this product for close to two years, and we have been iterating on many different versions uh, of the product. Today. I guess it's similar to the scooter market. I mean, there weren't that many sco- electrical scooters sold in the world. And after all these scooter companies popped up, now they have to de- de- manufacture the device themselves because um, there's no large producer that can produce in that amount anyways. So your hardware is manufactured in China, right? Am I correct? That's what I remember the last time we spoke. Uh, that is. So we, we have a dual manufacturer approach. We... Uh, currently work with a manufacturer in Turkey, um, and we also have a manufacturer in China as well. So those are the two manufacturers that we're working with, and we are looking to add a third manufacturer as well at the moment mm-hmm. um, elsewhere in the world to mitigate some of the global policy concerns that are out there at mm-hmm. the moment. So the hardware team, I guess, is almost, I mean, the hardware manufacturers are split 
between Turkey and China, your software development team is mostly in Turkey, but then you and the majority of the team is based in the US. That is correct. How do these teams work together and how do you sustain the culture? Uh, that is that is a great question. I mean, the company has um, exploded in, this, in the sense that we have now added, we have, I think, doubled in size over the past three months. So it seems like constantly there is someone new that's getting hired into the company that's starting um, and that's getting ramped up. So the culture definitely evolves very quickly with that. And it's very important to have strong like mission and vision and values set um, as you're hiring all these people. Uh, we actually are now undergoing the process of defining our mission, vision, values, and mm-hmm. I would say redefining it, um, and we'll be announcing it in the next few weeks to the company. We have a very strict interview process that we adhere by, um, which I found is very important. And at the end of the day, like every company makes mishires, the important thing is to make sure, one, you mitigate the mishires, and then like if you do make mishires, to identify that as quickly as possible possible um, and usually parting ways uh, with those people is better for both the company and the employee mm-hmm. and can you give us some figures about your traction whether that's number of devices number of cities that you guys are active in of course anything in terms of like revenue or growth would be valuable as well yeah for sure so the information i can share is like currently we're on thousands of screens in the united states and in five cities Those cities are San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, uh, Dallas, and Chicago. Which one's your favorite? Uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, staying at or in terms of uh, market? <laughs> Both. So in terms of staying at and in terms of market. I'm sure Dallas is not your favorite in terms of staying at. Let's <laughs> take that off the list. I love Dallas, but... <laughs> So I think like San Francisco has an incredible technology ecosystem. But um, and here comes being, the but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it's not the most fun place to live in, to be completely honest with you, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. I mean, New York is a huge market for us and the leader in terms of markets. And we have a big presence there. As you know, we yeah. uh, recently did an acquisition where we acquired the rights to approximately half the New York Uh, yellow cabs and advertising on top of them. So it's a big focus market for us and we're expanding quickly there. And maybe I'll say, fortunately, I have to spend a lot of time there due to business. <laughs> nice answer. And I know your co-founder owner uh, moved there, right, recently. So he's now based in New York. That is correct, yes. And seeing your success, I mean, your traction and of course your fundraising record, Are there any competitors that are popping up every day? I mean, even I saw a couple of companies that were pitching the same idea. I'm sure they're really far behind. They don't even have the hardware component yet. But do you see a lot of companies coming into the space? Yeah, um, there are some small copycats, but we don't really see any of them as competition, to be completely honest with you. And we're so much further ahead of um, all competition in terms of IP development and scaling and Uh, building the right relationships, that it really doesn't make any sense. I mean, there will be companies that try and fail, but like it's very, very difficult to compete with us uh, because we have such strong scale and network effects, you know. Uh, it's not like the scooter business where there is just a ton of competition that pops up and like there are just local network effects in here if you're just launching in san francisco like that's only san francisco local and then somebody can mm-hmm. go and compete with you in san diego that's not really the case with our business like we have very strong multi-market network effects 
as well as like now having invested millions of dollars into both the software and the IP as well as the hardware and getting mass manufacturing ready. I think it's also evident from the funding appetite, you know, like nobody wants to fund anybody um, that is trying to compete with us. That was my issue before, like while we were discussing initially when you had the idea and then before we invested, my biggest issue was the defensibility because I didn't believe the entry barrier was that high. But given the all the IV you've developed um, over software and over hardware, I can see how the defensible, I mean, it's a defensible business and the entry barrier is going higher and higher. And one thing resonated with me while we were discussing it with you two years ago, um, you said that you have to have economies of scale so that then you can build better network effects, which would make you even more defensible in the long run. And to be able to do that, you needed to fundraise a lot. Um, you said that fundraising would be your first barrier, exactly. which will bring in... Um, the scale, which would bring in the network effect. And you've done that really well. You've fundraised a lot. Um, you've raised, what, $65 million over the past two years? Yep, a little over $50 million. We're actually in the process of closing a new round as well, which is um, exciting. <laughs> yeah, you didn't struggle at all in fundraising. What do you think is your secret sauce? Um, I mean, it's a big idea that we pitch, and we pitch it very passionately, and we believe, we firmly believe in the vision. And I think we have also an incredible team, you know, um, and we have just executed relentlessly. Um, and every single time that we pitch, we show our expected traction to investors. And even if they don't invest and we get go back to them in like two months and we're like, look, this is what we pitched to you. And like, this is exactly where we are. And this is where we'll be in another two months. And then you come back and you show that you executed again. It just becomes a very compelling story to a lot of these investors. Uh, I mean, I'm a first-time entrepreneur, and again, like not having a track record of um, a couple multi-billion exits is definitely not like a, the biggest plus. But I think you can build a lot of confidence with these investors by showing all the traction uh, that you develop over time. And that has been just uh, working out phenomenally well for us. And honestly, we got a little lucky too. And it's like some of our amazing earlier stage investors like yourself and uh, like NFX, you know, like they, you guys did take a big bet on us. And we are trying every day, you know, to pay back all the returns that you guys deserve, you know, for that bet. So it's a combination of luck, um, having people believe in you, and showing a big, big vision and a big mission that you fully believe in. Mm -hmm. So we believe like our business has the potential to change how cities operate and can add so much to a lot of different people's lives, which I think resonates with a lot of people who want to invest in the business. I'm going to come to the uh, smart city aspect of the business um, later, but you're a great closer. I mean, the like, when I met with you and owner um, at your first office um, in Palo Alto, I, I think, um, we spoke for like 10 minutes and then your question was, so are you guys in or are you guys out? And I was trying to like not answer that question and give you like some rounded answers, but you wanted an answer. You were <laughs> much more, much more binary than a lot of the other entrepreneurs that we see. You were either one or zero, which I think is a big positive. I cut you there in the previous question because you were just going to say that you're going to close another round. Um, how much will that round be? We're not disclosing that in this, but hopefully big things are happening here. Um, and we are growing tremendously large. So we have great things in the works at the moment. And I will disclose everything <laughs> offline to you, right. but <laughs> online, I prefer to keep it confidential for the time. Makes being. sense. Makes sense. 
And there was another story while you were doing this first initial round um, that was led by NFX. You told me the story that your owner, I can't remember, that you were emailing all these VCs um, with a lower valuation and you weren't getting much responses. But then you upped your valuation and somehow the deal became more sexy for a lot of these other investors and they started to reply back and then you did your seed round. Can you tell me the story behind that? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit about creating FOMO here, Angus. Mm -hmm. So um, especially in bullish times and bullish markets, and I would say uh, now might not be one of them given (laughs) everything that's happening on and the growth capital like coming down a little bit. Uh, but especially in more bullish times, like there is a big FOMO component uh, that investors face. I mean, as an investor myself, like there are two things fundamentally in the back of my head, right? Like one of them is fear. Like I just fear that I will invest and uh, I will lose all my money. So like that's my fear. And the second thing that is fundamental to a lot of human beings is greed, right? And the greed component is I want to make 10x, 20x, 30x type venture returns. Um, so those are like two balancing acts that, that like a lot of investors um, are balancing in the backs of their head. And at the end of the day, like what needs to happen is like their greed and their want needs to overcome the fear of losing potentially all the money and suffering a reputational risk because you took a bet on a company that ended up failing. Um, so a lot of investors balance these two thoughts in the back of their heads. And the second it feels like it's a hot deal, um, investors are willing to, like then the fear element starts disappearing a little more. You know, like the biggest fear is I'm the only one who wants yeah. to invest in this. And if it fails, everyone will tell me that I'm dumb, you know, essentially. Um, but if it's more of a... And this sucks, right? Yes, yes. Like this really sucks. I mean, I face it myself. I was try- I'm trying to build conviction alone to a company that everyone else uh, passed. And funnily enough, I'm in Romania right now. So this company called UiPath, uh, which is almost a decacorn now, every single investor almost passed on it. But then Early Bird and Credo took a bet on it. And now they did like a thousand X on their initial investment. And I think it takes guts to have that psychology. And a lot of us as investors, we don't have it. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And at the end of the day, like it's about showing to investors like that, there are other people interested in them too, you know? So when you and I were having the conversation, like the stance I'm always taking is looking at like, like I love you so much and I want you involved in the company. And I'm showing you this because, like, I believe you're going to add more value to the business than anybody else that I'm speaking with. But I really don't have too much time to lose. So, like, if you don't want to do the deal, like, there are another 50 people that will end up doing it. And by the time, like, they're, by the way, like, we're facing so much pressure to close around, we need to, like, do it right now or not, you know? And, like, uh, when we were doing the initial fundraise, it was like it took one investor, right? Like it took NFX to get to conviction before anyone else. Mm-hmm. And as soon as like they got to conviction, like we were able to utilize that to actually increase the round price by almost two to three x uh, than what we had originally been uh, pitching. And um, although we had been pitching now for several weeks and there was no interest, um, as soon as that ended up happening, 
the run was fully subscribed within uh, a few days at a much higher valuation. So just just taking advantage and making sure people don't think like you're their only option and you're their only hope. Yes, like we would love to work with certain investors more than others. Uh, but at the end of the day, like we're also not going to stand here for weeks while an investor is trying to make up a decision or not because we need to get back to building our business. You know, like yeah. that's why we create uh, value. Yeah, it's really important to get to know fast, right? Um, you just want to know whether it's a no or not. And I was just speaking with yes. our other portfolio company called Avatar. They are in cybersecurity space and we were trying to understand their customer acquisition cost. And one components go into it. And then we realized for the deals that take more than five months, some of them are never close. And we're spending so much time and effort on them. So you know what? If a deal takes more than five months, we'll just consider it a no. Just don't spend any resources on it. And when you calculate customer acquisition point from a perspective that any deal that takes more than five months, you just kill it and don't spend resources on it. The customer acquisition costs goes down by like almost half, you know. Um, so I think for an entrepreneur, whether you're speaking with a VC or a customer, um, just get to know fast. Uh, that's an art to get to know fast. Um, and then I think it would speed things up. Definitely. Definitely. Let's go back to the smart city aspect of the business. From the start, you were pitching that Firefly will become a smart city platform with all of its city and people data. Can you please tell us a bit about your technology over there and what are some of the use cases? Yes. Um, so just to clarify, we don't collect um, any personal uh, data off of people. Um, Great. That was my question. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask that around like Wi-Fi routers, pinging people, getting their Mac IDs and stuff like that. I'm just not going to ask that now. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're not doing any of that. Uh just to put it out there, <laughs> um, everything everything that we do is within uh, black boxes and absolutely no personally identifiable information is being collected from anybody. Um, and everything that we do is uh, within like the privacy rules um, that are being set by different states and municipalities in the cities that we operate in. But like the types of data that we collect in is, for instance, is we have an accelerometer built into our display. And whenever a car goes over a pothole, we're using GPS, we're able to detect the exact location of the pothole and share that information back with the city so that they can go and fix that road. Mm -hmm. And like that information, no other company shares with them let alone share it with them for free, right? So, like, we just want to add as much value as humanly possible to these cities. I mean, this is a mission-driven company. Another example is there are, again, wildfires that are happening in California at the moment, and, like, there were some last year. And our screens, we have hundreds and thousands of screens that roam throughout us. So we're, these are, because these are big IoT devices, we're able to collect real-time pollution information um, on a street by street, even a block by block level, and share that info back with the Coalition for Clean Air as well as um, additional municipal organizations that are monitoring the health quality, uh, the, sorry, the air quality for health purposes uh, to determine whether schools uh, should be going on vacation or even like determining uh, locations where firefighters uh, need to go and need to evacuate people from. So this is a very real service that we today provide in California, and we are in the process of adding to our smart city uh, sensor suite as well. These are great uh, social causes. You should be doing more PR of these, you know, these, I mean, Firefly shouldn't be known as this advertising tech company, but rather this 
smart city solution um, that's fixing cities for the people while generating income. Definitely. Um, who's leading this within the team? Who's who's the person that leads all these smart city efforts and deals with the municipalities? Um, yeah, so the, the person's name uh, in, on our team is Gregory, and he comes from the nonprofit sector. So he's worked in the nonprofit sector for over 10 years, and he has a whole team um, to build all these partnerships. It's something that we focus on very heavily. Um, and then they work closely with product, which is owner's team, to figure out like what sensors to add, like uh, how much bandwidth that will take, you know, in terms of like software and like data capacity and all that. Cool. And you have your software team in Turkey. Um, was that a conscious decision from the get-go? Did you say, hey, you know what, uh, the costs are lower in Turkey, so I'm just going to have my tech team over there? Or did it happen organically um, because you knew people in Turkey, given your background here? Um, you wanted to set up your team there to have lower employee turnover, lower costs, larger team? Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, and it's like the reason we ended up doing it was uh, setting up the office in Turkey was because uh, we were trying to hire engineers here. And the talent pool that we were getting, that we were seeing, mm -hmm. like we couldn't compete with like the Facebook and Googles of the world, right? But then like when we looked at our home country in Turkey, we saw that the talent level was like equally as high as the San Francisco Bay Area, if not higher. Um, and like these were employees, people, partners, you know, to us who really believed in the vision, who really want to like work super hard and be a part of the company. You know, like we want to work with people who feel as if they're a part of the company. And the people, the a lot of the engineers that we interacted with in the Bay Area, unfortunately, just saw this as a job and they were like, okay, I'll just do it for a year and then I'll uh, move over to another company, which isn't the type of culture that we're trying to build. We were very lucky to actually um, know people in Turkey like yourself, you know, who helped us uh, get the office set up and helped us hire engineers. And we did use recruiters in Turkey as well. But um, and we are scaling the team too, but it has been one of the best decisions that we've made to date. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's good in Turkey is because there are limited options, and I'm not saying it's good from an employee perspective, but it's good for a founder for sure. Um, given the limited options in the local ecosystem, um, as long as the Firefly exists, and I'm sure you're going to have a great culture, a lot of people will stick around for a decade, if not more. Um, which is not the case in the Bay Area. I mean, people easily start companies, people easily go to Googles and Facebooks of the world, or they feel like there's this new hot thing that's coming up and they jump from company to company every year, uh, which sucks for a founder, also sucks for a VC fund. 100%. Yep. One question I have is, I know you're like an existential threat to a lot of companies and the market for out-of-form advertising is huge. So potentially this can, Firefly can IPO easily. But if that doesn't happen, and if you were to exit to another company, who would that be? What do you, who do you think are the likely buyers uh, for such a solution? Yeah, um, to be completely honest with you, Ennis, we haven't thought too much about um, exit via an acquisition or a sale to another company. And mainly because like our one and only goal is to create a category leader, um, a completely category-defining company, um, that will make an impact and like that standalone. So like that's our one and only goal. Uh, but as you know, like Google Ventures led our Series A round and Google is like very tied into advertising. So definitely being aligned with them in terms of 
uh, us being there in the out of home space and the physical world space is an encouraging an encouraging fact as well. And do you think Uber and Lyft will enter to the space? I've read some news that Lyft is planning to do create an out of home ad solution. Do you think they're entering anytime soon? I don't really know. I, I don't want to comment on what they might be thinking. But we would definitely welcome partners like Uber and Lyft, and we would love to work with companies like that um, and figure out like what the right partnership structure would be. I mean, it's the same with taxis, right? Uh, we love working with the taxi companies, and we would also love to work with the larger platforms as well. And one last question. Um, so you've graduated from Brown University. You were CFO of uh, JustMap, which is actually another five-fan startups company. Um, and then you went to Stanford. If you were to go back to your first year at Stanford and talk to yourself, what would you advise yourself to do differently? What's one thing that you would tell yourself? One thing I will say is, although I have made a lot of mistakes in my life, like many, many, many times, what I loved about my experience at Stanford was like from day to get go, I was like, okay, like my main focus is one, two, uh, make lots of good friends here, like get to know my classmates. And the second one is to hopefully um, utilize the environment that I'm in, you know, to create a business, which we were able to do really well. So I honestly wouldn't want to change anything about my GSP experience. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of classes that I would have wanted <laughs> to take you know, that I didn't get a chance to uh, necessarily take. But I actually feel really lucky about my MBA experience. And I think a lot of the choices that I've made there, I can stand behind. Um, in contrast, like I wouldn't say the same about my Brown experience, for instance. But Why? <laughs> what happened? What happened in Brown, <laughs> or what didn't happen in Brown? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was like more of a. Um, I'm coming from Turkey. Like I want to study engineering. You know, like I want to just like get really good grades and like focus on like all this. Uh, complex engineering stuff and I want to go get a PhD type mentality that I was in and um, I definitely could have utilized my four years over there to do other things you know that could have helped me get to the point where I am sooner than when I ended up here. Looking back I could have done much more while I was at McGill. I tried to build a startup during that time frame but put that apart I for sure couldn't leverage all the opportunities college gives you. I wasn't fully there and could have done much more. And four years is a long time you know, so. <laughs> it is like yeah. you've been what two years since you started firefly look yes. how life can change you know life can change and it's like before that i worked at a hedge fund for a couple of years like it not not good choices like i could have utilized seven years better but i think my stanford years like i i, I took advantage of them pretty well yeah, man i did construction for four years life can suck when you do construction for four years <laughs> i love it <laughs> you know exactly what i'm talking about so um well perfect um thanks for joining the podcast now let's go offline so that i, that I learn more about your next fundraising and get excited about the company <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Ines. have a wonderful day it is great that we talked about how we wasted our college years getting into the shoes of the investor is important to be on the same page in terms of risks and rewards of the business but more importantly to understand the motivations behind their decision once an entrepreneur is able to do that then he or she can create fomo and choose which investor to raise from that's what khan did significantly well in the next episode we'll have vadim from 3d look another 500 istanbul portfolio company but this time they're from ukraine ciao Here's a snapshot of all the activities we do here at Glocal. Apart from publishing a new podcast episode every Monday, we also publish video summaries on Saturdays. 
These short 5 to 10 minute videos are published across all of our social media channels. I also write brief weekly articles with core insights from every episode. Lastly, we do Tuesday Tips, where we gather advice from very influential people and share it on our social media. To get all that into your email inbox every week, please go to our website, theglocal.co, and subscribe to our email newsletter. We are very active on social media, so I beg you to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Ciao.